A few months ago, I visited my friend in Washington, D.C. As they were giving me the tour of their house, when we were in their home office, he passed a comment as we walked by his university master's diploma, calling it the most expensive decoration in the house. Diplomas look great hanging on a wall, but in a digitally driven world, who will ever see it or recognize it other than being a background in a Zoom call? We're going to explore new digital ways to reward and recognize humanitarian skills and experience in today's episode with Esther Greeter. You're listening to How Humans E-Learn Together, discussing the impact human-connected interactive experiences have on the human capacity to learn. This is a podcast for trainers, educators, learning and development professionals, coaches and mentors, the education technology community, and anyone who wants to leverage new ways to reach lifelong learners, and a look at what others in the e-learning industry are doing to make that happen. Today, I'm speaking with Esther. Esther has worked in the international development and humanitarian sector for 20 years, working primarily on education, youth, and humanitarian issues. Over the last six years, she's aligned that with supporting humanitarians through learning initiatives. One of them we're going to discuss today is HPASS. So I grew up in America and we had Girl Scouts. Mm -hmm. And so I can't help but like envision, you know, like a Girl Scout vest with like all the different badges on it still, but like with, you know, humanitarian (laughs) ideas on it. Oh, I know, I know. This is the bane of my life. I mean, the word badge does not suggest something as serious as it ought to really um so I'm always sad that that is the word that we've kind of hit upon but I guess I can't sort of change the underlying technology necessarily and um yeah hopefully people will see beyond that I mean you know it is partially that it's rewarding people for what they've done but hopefully they'll also recognize the contribution that it has to make in terms of you know increasing the transparency of skills in the sector and the transferability between organizations I think you'll stand a chance as long as you don't start making and selling cookies as well. (laughs) Esther, can you introduce yourself? Hi, yeah. So I'm Esther. Uh, I work for Humanitarian Leadership Academy, uh, which is a sub-organisation of Save the Children UK. And my role there is that I'm the Global Communities and Partnerships Lead. Um, But one of the big pieces of work that I've done, as you say, over the last few years is to develop the HPASS platform. So let's start with that. What are the kinds of skills you seek to recognise with HPASS? Well, I think one of the key things we set out to do with HPASS um, was to kind of recognise invisible skills. And way back when we were first conceptualising HPASS, there were several pieces of research done that were coordinated by an organisation called ELRA, which looked at how skills are recognised in the humanitarian sector. And one of the key findings was not so much about kind of lack of skills in the sector, but more about lack of recognition of skills um, that do exist in the sector. And where there remains a really clear gap is um, around kind of recognising the skills of people that are living and working in areas where crises most often happen. So the people that are kind of the first responders to crises. And it's ironic, really, that those people that are at the very kind of forefront of humanitarian response and are kind of directly saving lives are the ones that are least likely to receive any kind of valuable recognition for those skills that they've used and developed. So that's a key gap in the sector that we had in mind when we were developing HPASS. Um, And I think it's kind of part of a wider systemic issue in the humanitarian sector, really, uh, where global South skills are sort of undervalued 
um, in comparison to those in the global north. Yeah, so I guess in answer to your question, that's kind of what we've been set up to do. That's our overarching aim is to recognise a really wide spectrum of skills in the humanitarian sector. So we're looking at those kind of really uh, traditional skills, recognising course completions and assessments in a whole range of kind of technical areas, um, you know, water and sanitation, uh, monitoring and evaluation, all the things that people need to know um, from a technical perspective who are working in the sector. But we're also really keen, um, and, I, and I don't think we've cracked it yet, but to look at how we can really recognise practical experience and make those kind of invisible skills visible. For anyone who doesn't work in the humanitarian field, could you explain to us why it's important for humanitarians to have qualifications recognised? I suppose in terms of what I was saying about kind of local knowledge, humanitarian response can't happen without uh, that knowledge of the local context, um, without the people that are there on the ground that understand the kind of key players and the networks and resources that can be mobilised, the kind of cultural considerations that need to be taken into account, language issues and things like that. A humanitarian response can't happen without those people. And it's sort of interesting that we think of humanitarian response as something that's kind of given to communities to help them but it's actually more of a kind of collaborative process whereby the resources of the community are pooled alongside um, potentially some regional or international resources um, in order to kind of collaborate on that response so I think it's really important that those types of skills and and knowledge of the local context are recognised. Beyond that though I guess there's a wide range of other skills that um, are definitely really vital to humanitarian response as well. So as I mentioned kind of technical expertise, things like being able to set up um, water and sanitation facilities in a refugee camp, you know things like setting up safe spaces for children or highly technical things like mines clearance. Um, Those are all skills that require some kind of qualification and evidence that you are able to take on those tasks. Um, And I think as well what we're increasingly finding, which is really interesting, is that there's also a really high value on the kind of um, interpersonal skills that people bring um, to their roles in the humanitarian sector as well. And these things are quite difficult to to pin down and quantify in a way, you know, an interpersonal skill, sometimes called a soft skill. But those things are also really important, you know, the ability to adapt really fast to kind of changing situations, to kind of communicate clearly across cultural boundaries and to just work as a team and basically do what it takes during an evolving situation. I know from some of my time in the field, I've seen different workshops that have been held and usually they've been in the past, they've been in person. They're very thoughtful when it comes to the fact that generally people have other jobs or, you know, there's other things going on in their lives to have to to tend to and the hours will be kind of made around ones that work for the people who are who are learning these skills. You know, HPASS works in the digital world. So how has that transition from in-person learning to e-learning worked for humanitarians? Yeah, I mean, that's interesting because lots of things, I guess it feels, can only be learned by by doing, you know, by by having some kind of practical experience. And that's a real problem um, in a way for the humanitarian sector because a humanitarian response is a really sort of high stakes environment in which to kind of learn and and, and test new approaches. So that's why I think uh, in terms of digital learning, we're seeing kind of a range of different sort of simulations springing up to help uh, people that work in the sector kind of think through different scenarios in advance um, of actually being in those situations. So examples would be, um, there's one called In 90 Days, which kind of puts you in the position of a field manager making decisions and having to kind of juggle the importance of 
you know, things like the resources available, your budget, your need to kind of be accountable to the populations affected, um, you need to deliver a specific service, kind of putting you in the position where you have to weigh up all of these many important factors in order to take decisions. And other ones, there's one recently that's come out on um, Kaya Connect platform called Outbreak Ready as well. And I know that Gamerteca also has one called The Flood. Um, so those kind of simulations are, are quite an interesting development in recent years. Um, and I think what's also interesting is just that over the past few years, there's been a real movement to kind of make humanitarian learning free and accessible to anyone anywhere really and platforms like the Kaya platform are really at the forefront of that that's the humanitarian leadership academy's um, learning platform it's got around 500 different courses on it from different providers but the aim there is to make it so that anybody can sign up and do a course and do it at their own pace and when they've got time available from my own personal experience I know that I've had to do some different qualifications when it comes to working with the United Nations And I've, to be honest, I've always found it really boring and kind of time consuming and clicking, you know, I'm just clicking to get through the next thing. You know, have you found any places or different modules where people doing them together, like connecting people together, does that make a difference and the impact that it has and the effectiveness of of someone completing a course? Yeah, I think that can make a difference. Um, I mean, one of the things... Uh, with HPAS that we've seen is that um, we have this kind of annual um, it's not really a competition but you know an annual award called um, HPAS Humanitarian Learner of the Year for the most active um, learners on the platform and what we've seen this year that was really interesting um, was a bunch of different learners starting to kind of challenge each other to complete courses and things like that on LinkedIn particularly there was a, a bunch of learners based in Ethiopia that were all kind of challenging challenging each other to complete courses in order to earn that highest award Um, and I thought that was quite interesting because obviously it's much as that all the learning is really useful sitting there and doing it on your own at your laptop can be quite a difficult thing you know to motivate yourself in and around a busy role so to have that element of kind of like social motivation as well I think was really helpful for those people and I found that quite interesting. I'm just imagining like a little avatar Oscars moment where you know the the uh, the most learned H pass person is doing their acceptance speech with a little gold statue. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I mean, we haven't quite got to that stage yet, but who knows? Maybe that will be the twenty twenty three awards. Um, I look forward to that, and definitely the <laughs> acceptance speeches. Um, yeah. So you've talked a lot about the different courses that are offered. How do you assess the skills that are connected to the courses? Do you mind just sharing a bit about that? In some ways, I guess this is a really easy question and in other ways, it's quite difficult. So I suppose we're all familiar with the way that we assess knowledge on, for example, um, an online course where you've gained a certain amount of knowledge through the course and then at the end, there's a bunch of questions and you have to pass mark and you can just evidence that way that you've taken on board the knowledge that you've gained through the course. But I think what's much more difficult is kind of testing whether somebody has gained interpersonal skills or whether they have the relevant practical experience for a role. And I don't think anyone's completely cracked that yet. And it's something that with our HPAS network of organisations, so we've got around um, over 30 organisations, I think it's 35 now, that issue badges through HPASS. And so within that network, you know, we're talking about different ways to be able to recognise 
um, kind of practical experience or kind of interpersonal softer skills and those things that are quite difficult to measure. So we've got a couple of um, nice little examples that have have come out of there and hopefully um, there'll be more um, in the coming years as well. But so one example is we've got um, a network called the Global Buildings Performance Network um, and the aim of their network is to reduce carbon emissions in the buildings industry. Um, So they recognise people that have really championed their cause in terms of literally having um, achieved a kind of significant policy win in the um, context in which they're operating. So they recognise kind of people having taken significant action in that way. Um, And then they also recognise people that their network, I guess, deems to be sort of experts in terms of um, buildings performance. So that's quite an interesting one where it's, it's the kind of community or the network itself that kind of collectively determines whether somebody has a certain amount of experience or has demonstrated expertise in an area. So it's not just not only one right answer then, in other words. Yeah, exactly. It's not some it's not as simple as saying, oh, they got the answer right, you can tick it and therefore they've earned a certain level of certification. It's more about being able to recognise those slightly less they're not less tangible, but less measurable, I suppose, um, types of achievements, which are often the kind of bigger achievements as well. Which are sometimes the interpersonal skills that some of the HPAS curriculum offers, right? Like to assess things that aren't just knowledge that you have to memorize. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, Sacred Children UK has got an interesting one at the moment where they've just started to trial recognizing their diversity, equity and inclusion representatives so that's people that have really put significant time I think it's sort of 10% of their working role into championing that cause internally and sort of putting in place systems and processes that promote diversity and inclusion in the workplace so that's another kind of example of where practice is being recognized and that's really important you know one thing that can always be a deterrent for people is how much time it takes to complete anything in this fast-paced life that we can tend to get ourselves caught up in but so I'm curious what is the general amount of time or effort required to earn a badge yeah that's a good question and it varies really widely actually I think one of the features of of digital badges and of HPAS digital badges as well is that kind of transparency is a really key element so because it's not like a certificate where it just kind of has the name of the course on the front of it or something like that you can click through to see the metadata which tells you exactly what somebody's done to earn the badge and in that sense it makes it a much more kind of flexible medium for recognizing all different kinds of achievements because you can include that detail in there um, for an employer or somebody to see so I mean we have badges that recognize all sorts of different things really and it could be something just a one-hour course or participation in a webinar or something right up to you know almost what I mentioned about having achieved a significant policy win um, so it really does vary I suppose what's quite interesting as well is that lots of our HPAS organizations use a kind of pathway approach as well so you know as you say people feel that their time is at a premium especially if they're busy doing um, an important job such as working in the humanitarian sector one thing that lots of organizations choose to do is to kind of chunk up their learning into very small pieces so that you can almost have that feeling of motivation and achievement as you go through um, and as you take on each piece of knowledge. Something that you brought up that I didn't really think about before, but how do you select and choose who your HPAS organizations are? Like, can, can anyone just say, hey, I want to, I have a humanitarian organization. I want to create an HPAS for some of the people that are taking different 
courses or need qualifications with my organization, can they just apply to you? How does that work? Yeah, so any organization that's delivering learning or, or some kind of learning experience in the sector um, can use HPAS badges. We take them through a kind of induction process in order to make sure that the way that they use them is that they, in the metadata, they put that kind of really transparent description of exactly what their what the value of their badge is and what it represents. And we also encourage them to use other ways of kind of attributing value to it, I guess. You know, if you're a kind of little-known organisation, and you might want to think about who you can collaborate with in order to add value to your badge, you know, kind of a, a known university in the area that you're working in or something like that that can also um, add its endorsement to the, the learning that you're doing. So we take through organisations kind of through that process of developing their badges. We also do have this uh, quality standards process. So we have these uh, HPAS quality standards, which there's two sets. So one relates to um, humanitarian learning and one relates to the assessment of humanitarian competencies. Um, so these two sets of standards were developed over a two-year process. Learning providers in the sector consulted worldwide and online um, in order to sort of bring together best practice in terms of how learning and assessment are delivered in the sector. Um, so we also have those standards and organisations can choose whether to be um, reviewed against those standards as well to add a, a, almost like an extra piece of quality assurance to what they're doing. And are there any costs involved for organizations? Yeah, there are some costs involved in that just because we need to get on board an external review with the relevant expertise um, to be able to take them through that process. And that's partially why we make it uh, optional for our organizations to choose whether to go through that process or not. But for users, is there any cost involved as well? Ah, no, for the learners themselves, um, the platform is completely free. Yeah, so anybody can go and set up a MyHPAS profile um, and start to earn badges from different organisations. And is that open to anyone or is it only humanitarians? So absolutely anyone can really start doing some learning. If they're interested in, in the humanitarian sector, maybe they're interested in volunteering or they just want to know more about it, they could go onto a platform such as Kaya and look up some different learning um, and start to earn badges that way. It's interesting as well because you don't, lots of people that end up being humanitarians don't necessarily set out to be, I guess. You know, if you think about, I suppose, in the Ukraine recently, that's a relatively new humanitarian context. So a lot of people that had other types of jobs in their communities or might, might have been working in community organisations or businesses have kind of pivoted um, to be doing work that relates to the response. So often you get people that aren't humanitarians by profession but do need to look up some different skills that they might need to take on as they're responding to an emergency. Absolutely I've seen that definitely firsthand where just almost any kind of community organization ends up then mm. in a crisis running some leg of services that needs to be filled That's right? It. Yeah. The digital world Translating to IRL in real life, are users using their badges in the real world or is it just something that I can mock up on my LinkedIn page and looks good to anyone who might look at my page? Yeah, I mean, hopefully it does look good on your LinkedIn page. Um. <laughs> I'm sure it does, yeah. but I mean, I guess how is it translating from the digital world to the real world? Yeah, um, yeah so they do have real world value. Yeah, in, in a way, it's the same as, as how a certificate does, except that it has more information in it 
um, that the employer can see and it's kind of it's verifiable as well so you can trace it back to the organization that issued it um, so those are kind of the main differences between a badge and a certificate. There's certainly organisations that are using it as a kind of a prerequisite for you to um, be working in their organisation. So, for example, Voluntary Services Overseas, which is a UK based um, INGO um, and Warchild as well, um, kind of badge their mandatory training. Um, World Vision has this um, sort of Disaster Management Foundations badge, which is a kind of prerequisite for being able to join their international surge team. And I know that kind of trainings that everybody needs to have for example safeguarding essentials a lot of organizations make it mandatory for you to have earned that batch in order to be able to work at their organization or to travel with their organization or something like that so there's those kinds of use cases and then I think more broadly it's the fact that on a my HPAS profile you can kind of gather together all of the different badges and certifications that you've earned from different organizations and you can have them there in one place um, and share that as a link or a QR code or something like that. And I think there's there's some element of power in that kind of portfolio as well. You know, so we have some learners that really do spend a lot of time on their learning and development and make sure that they're kind of up to speed on all the latest developments in the sector and earning lots of different badges. And so for them, being able to demonstrate the portfolio as a whole um, is something really powerful to evidence to their employers how seriously they're taking their learning and development. Do you think it's also giving the opportunity to make the humanitarian sector a bit more equitable when it comes to who can apply for jobs? Because I know that that can be a struggle at times too, as far as, you know, whether someone local or an international posting is posted and what, you know, who's allowed to apply for things. Yeah, I mean, I really hope so. I don't, I don't think we're there yet, but I think down the line, that should be something that HPAS can help to change. I think part of our mandate is to kind of attribute value um, to all the different kinds of skills and knowledge that are in the sector. And I think it's sort of, there tends to, there's a tendency towards, you know, kind of academic and sort of theoretical knowledge having higher value, you know, anything that's got kind of a degree attached to it compared to that practical experience. So I think part of our mandate is to kind of shine more of a spotlight on the practical experience and the kind of like everyday steps that people take to advance their learning um, as opposed to those more expensive and time-consuming degrees and things. And what's the future for digital badges in the humanitarian sector? Is there something in the pipeline to encourage people to prioritize their learning that you might be able to share with us? Yeah, I think two of the kind of really interesting things hopefully in the future for HPAS are around um, that kind of ability to recognize different types of um, learning and expertise. I think we're really lucky in the sector that we've got lots of people that are already very motivated to learn and improve their practice. So part of what I hope we can do is really make sure that those people are being recognised equitably. And then I also think there's a really interesting space for HPAS to move into um, in future around kind of mandatory training, which can often be each organisation will have its own mandatory training, which is required before you can work in a response with them. Um, and I think there's a role for HPAS to play somewhere in the future, hopefully, about coordinating that more effectively. So making it that if somebody has completed that training with one organisation, that for a certain amount of time that is transferable to any other organisation operating in that area. Because um, I think that could have a really big impact on kind of efficiency and effectiveness of the sector overall. And sorry, my last question I think I want to add in is, are you finding that anyone who's doing badges together are connecting with 
with other people who are doing badges as well, like, you know, going forward? I know you mentioned um, the group of people in Ethiopia, but I was curious if you have any other buzz um, on either the digital world or in the real world about people completing badges together. What we'll be seeking to do as well is is bring together some of those people that have that have been really active on the platform and offer them opportunities to kind of share what they've learned across, you know, working in all kinds of different contexts globally. But I think that could be really interesting to kind of extend what we're doing to kind of think as well about what our what our learners can learn from each other and what they have to share. Um, so I definitely think it will be interesting for HPAS to be able to put those kind of spaces in place for our learners to get together and share what they're doing. So if anyone wanted to learn more about HPAS, Esther, where would they go? Yeah, sure. So you can look us up online um, at hpass.org um, or for more information, you can email info at hpass.org. Um, and I also did mention our Kaya platform um, at the Humanitarian Leadership Academy. That's our learning platform. Um, and you can find that at kayaconnect.org. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. And if you'd like to get in touch with us regarding today's episode, or if there's something you'd like to learn on a future episode, send me an email, lauren at gameoteca.com. That's all for this episode on how humans e-learn together, supported by Gameoteca. Until next time.